Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. It's really an article that's meant to contextualize what's usually taken for granted, which is French support. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Joseph Solis Mullen, talking about the geopolitics of Europe, France, and the first partition of Poland to the Battle of Yorktown. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, the Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is journalist and Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Joseph Solis Mullen. And he'll be discussing the first partition of Poland and how that affected the war for North America. Of course, the American Revolution. Joe's article is really a fabulous one. He'll be very frank in this interview that he is not a historian per se, but his article is pretty good. Uh, but he studies political science, geopolitics, and there are few subjects more complex and nuanced than the geopolitics of Europe in the 18th century. Uh, as Joe quotes in the article, uh, there are no permanent alliances in 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 Europe, only permanent interest for nation states. And I think that's pretty true. At the center of a lot of these machinations is France. Obviously, they're going to have a lot to do with the war for American independence. So I suggest you read the article, check it out. It's fabulously done. And we're glad to have Joe here at the journal. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Joseph Solis Mullen. Joseph Solis Mullen, thank you for joining us. Hi, Brady. Thanks for having me. Tell us about your background. Well, I'm a political scientist, a journalist, and I'm also a current graduate student in the economics department at the University of Missouri. Um, and part of the reason I did my undergraduate and first graduate degree in political science is because it's a very elastic discipline. It allows you to draw on everything from history to sociology to literature, psychology, geography, etc. And what I try and do with my research and my writing is show how proximate, that is, specific events fit into their broader context, uh, hence uh, my article. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, for, for one thing, it had always seemed to me to be taken for granted. French support for the patriots, once they had demonstrated some clear level of military capability. And of course, in the historiography, much is made uh, of the Battle of Saratoga. And the purpose of my paper isn't to minimize its proximate importance to France's decision to enter the conflict on the Patriot side. But what happened was I was researching something completely different, which was the destabilization of the existing European balance of power uh, by the emergence of Russia as an imperial power in the late 17th century under Peter the Great. When it occurred to me, as I moved through the, through the period, that this apparently totally ancillary 
matter made all the difference in shaping events a century later, specifically the revolution in British North America. Joe, if you could describe the geopolitics of Europe in the middle of the 18th century. I'm happy to. So what you had is what's called in international relations studies, a system of unbalanced multipolarity. Basically, this means no state was hegemonically dominant over Europe and that there were a lot of wars and a lot of shifting alliances. Now, by the mid-18th century, some of the powers that had featured very prominently in the prior three centuries of European great power competition had fallen into the second rank. I mean here primarily Spain, the Netherlands, and Portugal. On the periphery, you had the Ottomans, who were declining, but still a considerable force, uh, though they don't feature prominently in in this particular story. Austria, and I'm just going to call it Austria, um, obviously what we're talking about is the uh, Habsburg monarchy within the Holy Roman Empire, but I'm, I'm just going to call it Austria. It retained its extensive polyglot holdings in Central, Eastern, and Southern Europe. And ascendant were the Russians. We're going to come back to that. Um, Italy, of course, was not unified. Part of it was controlled by, by Austria. Italy, uh, yeah, Italy wasn't unified, uh, nor was Germany, of course. So it was kind of what we think of today as, as Germany was split between uh, basically uh, Austria and uh, Prussia. So when we talk about the region, uh, what we're we're really talking about are the Prussians. So the European great powers by the mid-18th century, in no particular order, were Great Britain, France, Austria, Prussia, and Russia, all of more or less equal power. Joe, I think an important part of this article and understanding it is understanding France's kind of precarious situation at home. Could you give us a rundown of that? Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. They do. And uh, so uh, it's, it's difficult to know where to start because, as you say, they have so many problems. But uh, just, just a quick bit of background in case there are any listeners who either don't know or, or have forgotten. Uh, France was still a feudal society with all the institutional baggage that entails. Contrary to the mythology, there was nothing absolute about French kingship. The entire essence of the feudal order was division of power. So as modernity progressed, the stronger the feudal society, the more difficult it was uh, for those societies to successfully transform uh, in the face of intellectual and material advancement. Apart from the church and the nobility, which all had their own uh, sacred rights and protections to go with their feudal obligations, there were guilds and levels of local government that all had their own prerogatives. So to take something as apparently simple as trade, as an example, if you wanted to send something from a western to an eastern province in France, you might have to pay a dozen or more internal customs, observe, observe different regulations, encounter many local dialects. Uh, land distribution in France was totally inequitable, uh, unequitable, with most freeholders on plots so small they could barely feed themselves, let alone participate in what nascent market there was. Uh, the guilds prevented the development of the skilled crafts, uh, c- causing a lot of unnecessary employment in the cities. Uh, the nobility, which was represented uh, in regional Parlement, uh, resisted all efforts at centralizing and standardizing reforms uh, by, by, the, by the monarchy, including very necessary tax reforms. So Turgot, who by, by the time of the American Revolution is trying to work these problems out from his position as controller general, he's being resisted by peasants experiencing price shock from the experience of the new experience of supply and demand. Uh, prior to this, grain had been totally state-controlled. Uh, n- nobles uh, who don't want to pay taxes, of course, uh, members of the court whose allowances he's cutting in an effort to stabilize really rapidly deteriorating French finances due to constant warfare over the prior few decades. Basically, because of the inefficiencies of its tax structure and method of collection, 
the French uh, government was using a Roman style tax farming system. The French government had to resort to massive loans to fight uh, the increasingly expensive wars of the modern period. And that's something that I think is worth emphasizing is the increasing cost of, of waging warfare. We're talking about floating large deep water navies, assembling artillery, large numbers of firearm, powder, shot. Uh, the, event, the British, I think, eventually win out in part due to geography, but also because of its vastly superior system of state financing, which they inherited from the Dutch via the Glorious Revolution. Because of this, the British could service their debt faster and at a far lower rate than the French, which was a critical advantage. Turgot, who was also the chief opponent of French involvement in the Civil War in British North America, uh, he's also ultimately ousted, and his few reforms are reversed. Vergennes uh, is far more influential than him. France gets involved. Uh, the war is long, expensive, and in the end, the Americans cut a secret peace with the British. Um, whole thing's a big swing and a miss, <laughs> as far as France is concerned. <laughs> Joe, who were France's allies? And I think more importantly, uh, why were they their allies? Okay, so this is a really fascinating question. And unfortunately, I have to give rather a somewhat longer answer, but uh, I'll try and keep this short. So, so this goes back to Russia's emergence under Peter the Great. This smashes up the alliance system that Louis XIV, the Sun King, had assembled to contain the hegemonic ambitions of the Habsburgs, then unified in their control over the Iberian Peninsula, as well as Central, Southern, and Eastern Europe. In rapid succession, though, the Russians destroy the Swedes in the Great Northern War. Uh, they start decimating the Ottomans and then gradually undermining the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Now, this was a disaster for France because those were its key allies. So initially what happens is France turns to Prussia, which is emerging under Frederick William as a formidable power in its own right. It had formerly been part of uh, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. It had received its autonomy for fighting on the side of the Swedes in a prior conflict. Um, but... Uh, France backs his son, Frederick the Great, in a contest over Austrian succession. This is the War of Austrian Succession that breaks out in the 1740s following the death of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles VI. Now, Maria Theresa, his daughter, of course, is the mother of Marie Antoinette. She gets her backing from the British. And though she ultimately wins out, she isn't happy with the British at the end of the conflict, nor are the French pleased with the Prussians. And what happens is, is really revolutionary. In 1756, the French and Austrians become allies. And this ends about two centuries of pretty ferocious competition uh, between the two. And it also winds up getting France dragged into the Seven Years' War, uh, because while at the Journal of the American Revolution, that conflict, uh, the French-Indian War, focuses primarily on events in North America and in the Caribbean, it really starts because of British-backed Prussian aggression in Europe, again against the Austrians in Silesia and Saxony. And while the conflict in Europe ultimately winds up being a stalemate and sees a return to the status quo antebellum at the war's end, the French lose out massively to the British in North America, but they remain tied to the Austrians. And this is critical to understanding the importance of the first partition of Poland to our story. Joe, you've mentioned the first partition of the Poland-Lithuanian Commonwealth. I think a lot of Americans may not be familiar with that. Could you talk about that? Of course. It's a perfectly understandable thing. Uh, there are actually three partitions of Poland. This is the first one. Uh, so at the end of the Seven Years' War, Catherine the Great takes power in Russia and aligns Russia with the British and the Prussians. They had originally been uh, aligned under the previous emperor or the previous czar, her husband, who she overthrows. They had been aligned with the French and the Austrians. But as I had mentioned previously, the expansion of Russian power had already been massively destabilizing to the European balance of power. But Catherine's successful wars against the Ottomans, this is the Russo-Turkish War, which uh, ends, uh, I believe, a year before the American Revolution, and her, her moves to try and incorporate the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth got Austria extremely worried. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, Austria felt totally exposed and also exhausted from war. All of the sides were ex pretty much exhausted from war by this point. It had been going on for 
couple of decades without really any break. And that's what stood out to me. And what happens is a deal gets cut between the Austrians, Russians, and Prussians. This deal is called the First Partition of Poland, and it happens right on the eve of the American Revolution. And what happens is a third of the territory of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth is secretly divided up between the three of them. Then they all invaded, took what they wanted, and recognized the legitimacy of each of the other's new territorial conquests. And the explicit purpose for this was really all three sides were exhausted from war, but wanted more territory. So instead of more, uh, to use Winston Churchill's uh, aphorism, more war, war, they jaw jawed uh, and put something on paper. And the goal was uh, stabilizing the balance of power in Central, Eastern, and Southern Europe, turning down the dial on security competition. And at least for a time it worked. Uh, This is one of the only periods of relative stability in uh, Central uh, Europe in the whole century. And as far as American end, uh, independence goes, that, that's really all that mattered because it occurred right at the perfect window for them. How did this affect France? Okay. So for France, it opens up a strategic opportunity to get involved in the civil war in British North America. Now, I go into much more detail on this in my article, but I'm going to keep this short here. Basically, the possibility of war on its eastern front required the maintenance of a large and costly standing army by France while countering the British required even, an even more expensive navy. And by this point, French finances are just such a mess that they can't afford to do both. Uh, you know, the, the war of Spanish succession, the war of Austrian succession, the Seven Years' War, um, they've been getting, they've been interfering in, in politics in, in um, the Dutch republics. Um, but basically, uh, the piece that follows the first partition of Poland, this, this singular break in the continual war on the European continent in that region for the previous hundred years offers the French this rare chance to just focus its energies on a single front, to focus on, on their naval efforts. That being said, the opportunity is a clear and enticing one. And Vergen argues strongly for it. Turgot, though, uh, the controller general was absolutely correct. The French really could not even afford that level of involvement in another conflict, especially if the conflict was prolonged, which it was. So that's maybe a strategic lesson that planners can take to heart today, uh, not thinking through the longer-term implications of immediate opportunities of apparent advantage. Um, thankfully for us Americans, uh, cooler heads did not prevail, and uh, the war came, uh, or rather the French came to the war. <laughs> Now, how did this affect the war in America? Well, I, I'm not a historian of the period. I'm a, I'm a political scientist, and I, I, I really do a lot of interdisciplinary research. So, so I would just say that based on what I've read, it's widely accepted that French aid was critical, both in terms of naval and financial support, um, to the war ending the way that it did. And I've read arguments that the British were bound to lose regardless of French intervention due to the guerrilla nature of the conflict and the sheer geographic distance separating Great Britain from North America. It's an interesting counterfactual fun, but but for me, I feel like the general consensus is that French aid, especially strategic aid, was uh, fundamental to the final victory at Yorktown. So I would just follow their lead. (laughs) Joe, we always like to finish with, with this question. Uh, how does this article help us to understand the revolutionary era better? Well, the purpose of my article was to pull back the reader's focus, to highlight the delicate contingencies that allowed for a momentous decision to be seriously contemplated and rationally defended. After all, the, the French had many reasons to support the Patriot cause. 
but which I hope I've shown would otherwise have been completely out of the question. Uh, because of its pre-modern institutions, France was incapable at that point of fighting another war on its eastern front at the same time it fought the British in the Americas. As we've talked about, simply the latter effort was the central cause uh, of the monarchy's collapse just over a decade later. Um, because uh, there's, there's an argument that it was critical to the, to the French Revolution happening. I, I think that's probably true that it happened when it did later uh, because of the added burden of the debt. But uh, I think it really... It's it's really an article that's meant to contextualize what's usually taken for granted, which is French support. And it's admittedly a minor contribution, but, but as a layman in the field, I'm just happy to have been able to further the discussion because knowledge building is a collective process, and it brings me great joy to be a part of it. Joseph Sully Smolin, thanks again. Thanks for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.